Hi, I'm Tim Root, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. So today I want to welcome the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi. Mark, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Tim. It's good to be with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, it'll be fun. So for the handful of folks that don't know Mark's background, let me try to do a, a, a quick once over here, Mark. So you, you're on the board of directors of MGIC Magic, better known as the nation's largest private mortgage insurance company. You're the lead director of the Reinvestment Fund, which is one of the lo- nation's largest community development financial institutions. Co-founder of Economy.com, which Moody's purchased in 2005. Congrats on that. Trusted advisor to policymakers and an influential source of economic analysis for businesses, journalists, the public, frequently testifies before Congress. I think you and I actually did something in front of the Senate with Calabria once too. And often quoted in national global publications, interviewed by major news media outlets, frequent guest on CNBC, NPR, Meet the Press, CNN. I don't see anything about Fox, but we'll let that slide. And various other national networks and news programs. So in summary, we're very fortunate to have you, Mark. Thank you. Actually, Tim, I've been on Maria Barron. I love Maria's show. She's the most courteous host I've ever been on. I'm going to show a few times, believe it or not. She's, she's actually very nice. Uh, she's, she's very she's gracious. Lovely. Yeah. I'm looking at one, two, three, four letters from her on my wall that she sends after an interview, which, as you know, is not very customary. Well, now, hold on. I didn't get any letters, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So I, I don't, you, you must have done a good job. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a picture and send them to you. Okay, there you go. <laughs> All right. So, Mark, along those lines, so you're one of the most prolific speakers, I'll say of all time, equally prolific publisher of economic analysis and, you know, federal policymaking. So as a consequence, everybody presumably has an opinion of you. You know, for example, I thought this was hysterical. I saw a 2009 Time magazine article that referred to you as, I quote, the recession's hot wonk. Two words not often used together, hot and wonk. And it makes me think that, you know, maybe this is 2009, maybe you missed an opportunity to leverage that title in some kind of collaboration project with, say, you know, Johnny Depp or Brad Pitt, you know, maybe some hunky holiday calendar or something like that. But so congrats on that. On the other side of the coin, though, I read another article about you written in biggovernment.com. So obviously a household name that was slightly less complimentary as they not so affectionately referred to you as. America's, quote, worst economist, unquote. <laughs> Honestly? I, 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 so, I put the radar screen. No, I, mean, I was feeling good. Yeah. So. so that'll be fair. I've had some zingers written about me over the years that I still can't shake. So I got to ask, Mark, my hard-hitting first question for you is, you know, what are the one or two most memorable, critical or complimentary labels ever given to you by the media or, you know, some other person? Oh, I got a good one for you. Uh, <laughs> This is, you know, of course, I've been an economist a long time, Tim. I think, let me see, 31 years as a professional economist. And so that means I was young at one point in time and I had body mass. And so I uh, was, was, was it, it was Fortune magazine. You know, remember when magazines were like real things, glossy with lots of advertising and being in the magazine was like really, I took great pride in it. And they ran uh, an issue on the, on the, I think it was the top five, hottest economist, you know, the, <laughs> oh, sexiest economist, they said, the five sexiest yeah. economists. And I was on there with <laughs> David Hale. I mean, names up nobody probably ever remembers. 
but uh, they had me, and I don't know why I did this, but they had me kind of dress up like Rocky because I'm from Philly. <laughs> Philly. And, you know, that was when Rocky was like a, you know, big deal. And I was on the uh, steps of the art museum in my Rocky garb and they took that picture and I, I got it into, into Fortune magazine. So <laughs> that is my most memorable, mo I think that's my most memorable media. The, I guess the other one, I had one with Barron's and again, I was young and they had me roll up big dollar bills and hold that. They took a picture of that and they had a whole spread on something I was saying. I, don't, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I enjoy the media. Uh, you know, I enjoy, I actually learn a lot from talking about the media because the first thing you learn is, well, what's top of mind, right? Because they're on the pulse of things. And yeah. secondly, they actually, they're very smart and they get right to the meat of the matter and they, they cross pollinate, right? Because they're talking to all kinds of people with all kinds of views. And so I, I learn a lot uh, talking uh, to journalists uh, because, because they are so smart and because uh, they do talk to lots of different people. So I, I think it's a very valuable thing to do. Uh, I find it very useful. So we've both been around GSE reform since there was a topic of GSE reform. And like a bad penny, GSE reform has come up, it seems like every year now for at least 13 years into conservatorship, right? So I know you've been more intimately involved, of course, in the reform proposals over that period. So now as we're approaching a potential, a pivotal point in time with respect to the fate of the GSEs, and I'm, I'm referring to you know, the much anticipated SCOTUS ruling on the Collins case about the constitutionality of the single director structure of the FHFA, and of course, the president's ability to terminate a director at will versus for cause, which leads me to ask, you know, the hypothetical, if the SCOTUS ruling determines, which should come out sometime in the summer, that the president can indeed fire the FHFA director at will, and Biden does just that and replaces Director Calabria, what do you think the agenda would be for a Biden-appointed FHFA director? Well, there's a lot to do. You know, I think most fundamentally, it's about promoting sustainable home ownership and, and certainly uh, we need to work on that, right? Because the black home ownership rate is about 40%. I'm rounding, but you know, roughly 40%. The Hispanic Latino home ownership rate is uh, not quite 50%. And uh, the white home ownership rate, I believe, is closer to 75. So all in, you know, across all ethnic groups and racial groups, it's about 65%. So, and it's not improved. You know, we've gone nowhere on home ownership for decades. I mean, it goes up and down and all around, but, you know, you cut through the ups and downs and we've really not made progress. And that's a problem, uh, you know, particularly for lower income Americans of color, because that uh, home ownership is the most critical way to building wealth. And uh, without uh, owning a home, very difficult to build the wealth that's needed to send your kids to, to college, to be prepared for retirement and, you know, even be prepared for events, uh, things that go wrong, like a pandemic. So uh, we really need, and I think the Biden administration will, when given the opportunity, really focus the GSEs and, and the entire housing infrastructure towards trying to get sustainable, appropriate home ownership. I think that's the, the key goal here. So more or less really using them as instruments of public policy and being less concerned about, you know, the solvency or, uh, well, let's just call it solvency, building capital, reforming them, releasing them. And instead, while you've got them and you're in a position to use them as instruments of public policy for things like that, then lean in hard to that, hit the pause button, perhaps on some of the 
other priorities that are underway today? No, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. I think the GSEs are on very solid financial ground. They're in conservatorship, obviously, so they're not doing this for real. But I mean, if you look at the, the fees they charge, the so-called guarantee fees they charge, they are consistent with a well-capitalized, uh, appropriately capitalized financial institution that's systemically important and is protecting taxpayers. I think they are exactly where they need to be in terms of solvency and protecting taxpayers in terms of the, the way they're uh, now uh, pricing implicitly. So let's say, so if you have safety and soundness on one hand, then you have the public policy position of, you'd have to expand the credit box to help serve the underserved, presumably. I mean, some of it's about education and getting your hands on the right people and the targeted people. So as you look at expanding the credit box, that generally means that you're gonna take on more risk. So do you, and at the same time, you need to keep the costs low because these underserved borrowers, you need to find a way either to directly subsidize their income or give them vouchers or some other mechanism if you're not going to do it through lower interest rates to make these, to make the mortgages affordable. So as you're widening the credit box, you wouldn't see, even though there's incremental risk that the pricing would go up or this is a hypothetical. I'm not trying to back. Yeah, no, 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 no. Well, the first thing I'd say is do no harm, right? So exactly, yeah. I mean, I think current FHFA is wants to change the, the capital framework for the GSEs that would inappropriately increase the amount of uh, capital that they need to hold. And again, everything is implicit here, obviously, in the sure. conservatorship. And they would then be capitalizing at a higher level than other institutions that are taking on the same kind of risk they are. Now, they don't need all as much capital as a bank because they're not taking the same risks. Uh, the bank has right. not credit risk, but it has... You know, it's taking interest rate risk, it's taking fund, has funding risk that the GSEs don't have. So changing the capital framework in a way that would cause guarantee fees to rise would be counterproductive, detrimental to the goal of expanding home ownership to underserved uh, communities. So for, first principle, first thing you would do, and this is a big deal, you know, would be, you know, do no harm. The, the other thing is, uh, I, I think it's very important that the GSEs offload the risk that they take, the credit risk. So they're, they, you know, they're insured, they're insuring against credit risk, they take the credit risk, and they now have a well-functioning credit risk transfer market, both to capital markets and to uh, reinsurers, that they need to use and offload the risk that they take. And I think they can use that market, those markets and those private investors as a way to help expand the credit box, because there's a lot of appetite among investors for, for taking that kind of risk and credit risk. And the GAC should empower that and use that. And I think in that way, they could expand the availability of credit to parts of, of, uh, of communities, the, the underserved communities that exist in, in, in our society today. Yeah, I agree with all that. You know, one thing that when I was at Fannie Mae in the early 2000s, they had a program, I think it started in the 90s, uh, called the American Communities Fund. Are you familiar with that? No, oh, no, I hadn't heard that. It's a really, it was a different approach to meeting housing goals. So as we look at it traditionally, it's you know more or less a kind of a quota system. You know, Fannie and Freddie scramble to buy loans that have already been originated to underserved borrowers, or they create a program to serve a targeted uh, set of borrowers. So those, anyway, those were those are modestly effective. But the American Communities Fund was something where they would target an area that was kind of downtrodden, depressed, and then they would bring in their government guarantee, issue debt, bring in private capital partnerships. But then they would do real development projects where you'd find an anchor 
tenant like uh, a Walmart or, you know, something like that. And then they would build up the community around it, multifamily housing, apartments, all affordable, but then creating that rising tide lifting all boats, as opposed to these kind of one-off approaches where you, you know, some of the value is dubious. This clearly is something that has real sustainable wealth creation opportunity and the infrastructure and services around it to support this new development. It was really effective. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. What's it called? What was that program called? American Communities Fund. Jeff Hayward at Fannie used to run that. It was a great program. Anyway, just something else to think about. Yeah, I mean, I I think we also need to get creative. Like, you know, for example, one of the, Jim Parrott of Urban Institute, and he's got his own consulting firm with Bob Ryan, and I just wrote a paper on the affordable housing shortage. You know, as you know, there's an shortage of homes for sale and for rent for lower, lower middle income households. And one of the things we learned that surprised me was that one of the constraints on building at these price points is the availability of construction and land development credit. AD&C market, as it's called, is a shadow of what it was, in part because it was really badly done during the housing bubble, and it was a big part of the housing a bus that followed the financial crisis, but you know the fact that that market has never really come back. You know, particularly at smaller banks that are key to small builders, which are key to building you know homes in the lower price points of the market. That has been a real problem, and that market is not liquid. You know, there's no secondary market for those loans, and so that feels like you know. And I'm just throwing this out as an idea, but you know, we need to get creative here about trying to develop a secondary market for those types of loans so that we get more liquidity, lower interest rates, more availability, so that we can put up more homes. And we put up more homes, that means that house prices aren't rising as much, rents aren't rising as much, people who are renting can save more, people who want to buy a home have a better chance of being able to afford it. So we got to focus on on that. So we need to get much more creative about the things that we're doing. We got to get out of the box of our own minds and and become more, think about how we can do this in in a responsible and appropriate way. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Well, let me move on to the Biden team. So if you look at Biden and the Democrats on the Hill have, say, hit the ground running and like super fast. Uh, They've got some very expensive and ambitious plans, you know, legislatively and administratively for housing and housing finance. Things like the $15,000 first time homebuyer credit tax advance, which I think is a pretty cool idea, the advance part of that. Um, incentives for states to change zoning and land use laws to allow for more density and you know more desirable neighborhoods and increase affordable housing options, extend foreclosure and eviction moratoriums. So to that end, so w- which of these policies or other policies are you most optimistic about, and which ones are you concerned about? Well, I, and I why? Love, yeah, yeah, great question. And you're right; they, you know, they they have gotten off to very fast. It kind of reminds on every level, right? It's not just housing; it's on every everything feels like pro football team that has scripted out the first 50 plays. <laughs> it is about, it's about executing on the plays. They know exactly what they want to do. It's about execution. And so far they've run through 35 plays and every single <laughs> play has been flawlessly executed. And, you know, they've actually got a couple of touchdowns already and they're, you know, spiking the ball appropriately in the end zone. Now, obviously it's going to get harder going forward because they're going to run out of scripted plays. But, you know, it feels really quite amazing that this is, this is happening. So, so, but on housing, the thing that uh, makes me most excited is the, the focus on the supply side of the market. You know, the, it's part of the infrastructure package that the president unfolded 
the $2.6 trillion in, in uh, infrastructure spending and tax credits. You've got several hundred billion dollars, you know, close to $250, $300 billion worth of support for trying to increase the supply of housing, going back to my point about the shortages of affordable homes. So that's everything for everything from, you know, more money for public housing, more money for the home program, more money for the housing trust fund, which goes to affordable rental, the CAP MAG fund, which goes to CDFIs and CDEs because they're in the communities and are helping increase supply to tax credits, you know, uh, LIHTC and new market tax credits, other, other forms of uh, support. So the, yeah, I think they got the focus just right here. It's less about focusing on trying to support demand as it is about uh, supporting supply. And that goes to the you know, first-time homebuyer tax credit. I mean, obviously, the president made a, you know, made, was focused on that during the campaign as one of his ways to promote homeownership and build, help people of color to build wealth. But I'm less enthusiastic about that in the current context because, you know, that's going to support, that kind of increases demand. But if you increase demand in a world of very uh, limited supply, what happens is you just juice up price. Uh, House price goes up and it doesn't improve affordability. It doesn't improve home ownership. So if I were thinking about the home borrower tax credit, I think I would make it more targeted, you know, very, very targeted to you know, first-time home buyer, first generation, you know, try to make it very targeted to the minority groups, the, the black Latinx groups that you're trying to, uh, to address and, and uh, make sure that they get that credit. And that will limit, that will help them, but also limit the demand side effects that will probably just end up in price. So I, I, I'm very enthusiastic about the supply side efforts here. And, and by the way, that's the bulk of what he's proposing. He hasn't even proposed the first-time home buyer tax credit as far as I'm aware at least not at this point in time, but that would be something I'd be less enthusiastic about, not, not in a normal time, but in, in the current context, given the very limited supply. Yeah. Well, on the supply side, one of the things, not to seem uncharitable, but in a normal market, I think in 2019, you had over 300,000 foreclosures that year, and that was objectively a very strong economy. And now you've got inventory that's off 40% this year from an anemic last year, to your point. The policy that we're talking about, about building supply, take time and they take local cooperation, to say the least, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, this is, you got to be engaged in a very persistent way over a period of time. And, and a lot of the, I mentioned our, the study I did with Jim. The other thing that we learned, which is, I think, more well known, is obviously exclusionary zoning goes a long way to explaining the problems we have in many communities. And that's, to get to change that's not easy at the federal level because it's all done at a state and uh, particularly local level. So yeah, it, but you know they're even trying to they're attempting to get at that as well through various types of carrots, competitive grants uh, to uh, local communities that uh, you know change their zoning to make it more inclusionary, that kind of thing, which I think is a good idea. But in, in that case, they may at some point have to not only have a carrot but have you know some kind of stick where they say, look, if you want you know, transportation dollars from the infrastructure bill you've got to you know, work to change your zoning to allow for more, a more inclusionary kind of activity. So that, that may be a path that we'll have to go down at some point. Yeah, I, I agree. One of the other things though about on the foreclosure side is, is that the kind of blanket foreclosure moratoriums are probably t- taking critical, desperately needed inventory off the market. And again, not to seem uncharitable, but there will be you know, a pocket of the 3 million mortgagors that are not going to be able to recover and are going to have to right size and evaluate 
a short sale, a deed in lieu. Nobody wants a foreclosure for all the reasons that you you already know. But are you concerned about something like that, that the blanket moratoriums might be starving the market for some inventory and that there'll be opportunities to put your hands on um, and give real attention to those most distressed that unfortunately, despite the government's best interest, the agency's best interest, simply won't be able to stay in that property? No, I'm not worried about it. I mean, I think the numbers here are too small to make that big a difference. I mean, I think right now we've got, at least last time I looked, I think it was two and a half million mortgage borrowers that were in some type of forbearance. And, you know, that includes people that were hit by the pandemic, but then many others who were in trouble before then. And, and that's coming off. You know, my sense is, I think they, the administration just extended the forbearance towards the end of June, to the end of June, uh, the rental eviction moratorium, I think also to the, uh, to the end of June. By then the, the pandemic will be over uh, or, you know, largely over. It feels like it's already winding down now. That means we're going to get a lot more jobs, a lot lower unemployment. And so I think those, many of those people are, going to be very, you know, they are homeowners that can afford their homes and they'll be able to sustain homeownership going forward. And I don't think that's enough inventory to make a difference. No, the real, the real issue here is new supply. We need new, a lot more new construction, both on the single family side and on the rental side. You're here. Well, Godspeed on that one. God, that's certainly, um, certainly something that the market desperately needs. So let me, let me move off that for a minute. So I know we touched on this a minute in your, in your bio, but now, most folks don't know that you know you're an entrepreneur and that you had a very successful venture, economy.com that you started with. I believe it was your brother and a friend from grad school. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Way back in 1990. That's uh, January of 1990. It was a recession. Tim, my wife looked at me and said, "What in the world are you doing?" <laughs> I I started um, my old company, the Collingwood Group, in 2007, and I remember sitting with my mentor who was listening to me intently, giving him his pitch. Then he took a long drink of his coffee and goes, why in the hell would you start a company in the biggest recession that any of us have ever known in our lifetime? I did but, not know that. Congratulations. You did you highly successful. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, it's never how you draw it up, right? But, That's absolutely true. Yep. But the, the point of this was that, you know, many of the listeners on this, you know, they're entrepreneurs or at a minimum entrepreneurial in one way or another. And you know, I was thinking about it this morning. It's like, you know, being an entrepreneur is a super romantic concept for anyone who's never done it, right? So while I love my former business partners like brothers, you know, business partnerships can be very delicate things. I remember describing it to my business partnership to my wife. I described it as what I would imagine polygamy is like. It's like twice the fighting and half the romance of a traditional marriage. That, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. You really nailed it. Fortunately... I've, what was your experience like doing that? I mean, what was what was your experience? Well, I was very fortunate, right? Because my my friend, my best friend, was a very good economist, but his comparative advantages were kind of managing the business, you know, the HR issues, the insurance, the legal. There's a gazillion things that are necessary to get done to have a successful business. And he was great at it. And he and he was also less so now 30 years later, but he was, he was a bad cop. You know, he could, you know, come down hard on people. And I, I was an economist, you know, I, I, yeah, that's what I did. I loved, you know, the kind of thing I'm doing now. I'm doing the exact same thing today that I did 30 years ago. And uh, so we found a division of labor. And I, I think that is critical to a successful startup. You've got to, it's like a basketball team. Each player on the team has got to know their role. You got to, yeah. 
will embrace it. And if you're always fighting for the other guy's position, it's just not going to work. You're, you're going to fail. And of course I had my brother who, uh, you know, I, you know, he's still with me and he, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, a, a gem and he's actually my, my, my best friend retired and he's taken over from my best friend and he's a, a fab, another fabulous business person. So I've been incredibly fortunate. And, and of course, the other thing, Tim, I don't know about you, but what really matters is your family and your spouse and their commitment to you and, and backing you up. If you don't have that, it's pretty tough. You really need, because you're going to have hard times, right? I can remember telling my wife, we had to make a decision about what kind of, uh, whether we could, my, you know, whether we could, uh, my son needed two types of pharmaceuticals and we could only afford one. So I said, honey, we got to pick one or the other. And that's a hard discussion. And fortunately, I was able to figure out how to get him the other pharmaceutical. But if you have that kind of pressure, unless you have the right partner or spouse, you, or you're going to, uh, you're going to have, you're going to have a hard time, uh, you know, getting it done. So uh, yeah, I, that's so true. Very fortunate. <laughs> I'll tell you one funny uh, short story uh, along that lines was uh, my wife was kind enough to let me do this for like six months. And, but we were having no income coming in. And again, it was a recession. So you're bleeding on all, on all ends. And she delicately says, Hey, maybe just maybe, you know, you should think about getting a job. And I said, <laughs> I said, I need you to get comfortable with a number. She goes, uh-huh. Okay. What number do I need to get comfortable with? I was like, zero. I'm going to bankrupt us or make this thing successful. And she just kind of walked away backwards slowly and closed the door. And I had to figure it out from there. But yeah, you do need that support. You do. Absolutely. <laughs> Congrats. All right. Well, let's move on to, you know, things like, well, you've covered a lot of topics over the years, of course, you know, public policy, economics, yada, yada fiscal challenges, regulatory reform, all those things. Is there like one thing that you think is so important, but like either nobody wants to talk about it or it's something that we need to be talking more about either for the country or for housing? Well, Tim, you know, in this day and age, it's hard. Everything's talked about a lot. You know, there's, not, there's nothing that, there's no rock that we're not turning over and exploring in, in, uh, in detail. So yeah, I guess the only thing I'd say in the very near term that I just kind of throw out there for people to, I don't know if this is going to be news, but just to pin <laughs> in it is, you know, interest rates are going up. Uh, you know, we've been in a world of declining interest rates, low interest rates, incredibly low interest rates for really, they peaked back in the early 80s. Uh, and it's been, you know, more or less moving south. And that is a powerful tailwind to the economy, but particularly housing, right? Housing is the most interest rate sensitive sector in the economy, single-family housing. And those days are over. You know, interest rates are going up. You know, we're, we're going to have a rip-roaring economy here and lots of jobs, lower unemployment, all good. But that means rates are going to normalize at least. And in, in my thinking, in a typical well-functioning economy, the 30-year fixed rate loan should be going for somewhere north of 5%, probably closer to 5.5%. You know, that would be something like a 3.5%, 4%, 10-year yield plus 150 basis points in spread, you know, for servicing and origination and guarantee fees and everything else. And so uh, we're net, what are we today, Tim? I, I don't know, like three and a quarter, maybe, maybe even a little less than that on the 30-year fix. So going up 200 basis points, that doesn't, you know, that in, in some context, it doesn't feel, sound like a lot, but that's going to be hard on this, on this housing market. It, certainly refis are going to, they're already starting to wane, but you get to a 4% mortgage rate, they're gone. 
uh, in all intents and purposes. And then at a 5%, 5.5% rate, uh, that's going to be tough to digest. And it goes back to my point about we need to focus on home ownership for lower middle income households. And with a rising rate environment, that is going to become even more difficult, more critical. And I think that's something, you know, of course, forecasting everything is difficult. Forecasting interest rates is an intrepid affair, but I think a prudent planner would uh, be forecasting those kind of, that kind of a rate uh, outlook. And we need to be, everyone needs to prepare for that. You don't think that the Fed or other forces will step in and do some sort of yield curve control, knowing that the ripple effect through the economy of rising rates, um, over-leveraged companies, individuals, governments, you don't think that they'll step in and do whatever they can to manage it and just hope for the best? Well, I, I think they would if, if things really got dire. I mean, I think they desperately don't want to do that. You know, they, they, they do feel like, you know, normalization of rates is a positive thing. You know, it's a feature, not a bug just as long as the economy doesn't fall apart. But that's a pretty tricky thing to get right. And, but I, you know, they might step in, but that would, have to, that would have to mean really bad things are happening to the economy and particularly the housing market if they did that. Well, that actually feeds right into my last official question around government interventions and what your feelings are around that. So is it like Ronald Reagan where the government uh, is the cause of the problems, not the solution of the problems? And I interviewed Mark Calabria a couple of weeks ago and he, I read something he had done that really teed this up nicely. He talked about how government interventions into things like housing and access to housings are almost always in response to an issue that a previous intervention by the government caused. And he used examples like in the Great Depression, FHA came to, came to be, and they introduced the first 30-year term when most mortgages were 10-year terms in an attempt to kind of stabilize property values, make them more affordable. And then in the 80s, you saw things like the expansion of zoning and growth controls, which limited supply and caused values to go up. And then, of course, the increased government share of the mortgage market, which increases moral hazard because the government's bearing virtually all the risks and fuels further home price appreciation because of the subsidized cost of the mortgage. So what's, what's your feeling on those sorts of government interventions? Well, look, it's a balance, but government has a very important role to play. I mean, the pandemic is... Point number one, case case in point number one. Look, if you have a crisis, there's nothing that's going to help except government. I mean, that's the critical. I mean, Fannie Mae, FHA, I think the federal home loan banks were put on the planet in the Great Depression to address the very serious financial situation that many American households found themselves in, and they weren't going to get out of it. They were going to go lose their homes and and be homeless without that government intervention. The financial crisis, the same way. I mean, if the government had not stepped in and intervened Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it would have been it, it would have been a mess. Those are the two largest financial institutions on the planet, and if they failed, that would have been chaos and taken out the entire financial system in the in the entire American economy. So, uh, and then the pandemic. I mean, it's proof positive of the key role. Uh, that government plays. Without the government intervening, it would have been Armageddon, you know, on every level. So no, I, I think that's just just wrong. And the other thing I'd say is without government, uh, the private sector also makes mistakes. I mean, to, in my mind, the finan- I, now I'm speaking to you as a card carrying member of the financial system. I am the chief of my day job is the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Moody's, just think about that for a second. And I'm telling you, that the key reason for the financial crisis is because the private label securities market, this is the private mortgage securities market, was just completely off the rails and resulted in 
exploding two-year subprime arms, low-doc mortgages and NEGAM loans, you know, things that completely make no sense economically or for anybody and completely blew up. And that's because the government did not play its uh, very critical role in overseeing you know, the, the financial system. Now, now, there's a balance, obviously, and the government certainly makes mistakes, but so, do, so do, does the private sector. So I think that we have to think about working together, you know, government and the private sector to solve problems. And by the way, the CRT market, in my mind, is a beautiful thing, the credit risk transfer market. That is a combination of government coming together with the private sector and doing something that is in the best interest of both and making the system much stronger and sounder going forward. And that's the things we have to continue. Finally, I'll say, we got big problems, really big problems. The racial equity issue, the income and wealth uh, inequalities, the climate change. These aren't problems that can be solved by, in, uh, by the private sector on its own, by individuals. This is something we've got to do collectively as, as a team, government and the private sector coming together, working together and trying to solve these problems. Because if we don't, we're not going to solve them. I agree. I, I have trouble with, and I think you're right, you have to work towards enlightened self-interest so that private companies need to sacrifice some for the overall good of the country. And then you'll get yours in due time, right? I mean, like, if it all works out, then you'll make money just fine in the long run. But if you're vilifying private enterprise then, and you you erode the trust that they have in their government, that, that causes a problem, right? It's not, for example, patriotism that compels mortgage lenders to use government lending programs, right? It's capitalism. And if, if I no longer trust my counterparty in the government or I wake up in fear of them every day, that's, that's a bad combination. Oh, yeah, sure. No, I mean, the vilification makes no sense. That, you know, I don't know that that's even what we're talking about here. I mean, that's we're saying, does, does the government trip over itself on a regular basis and you know, mess things up and all we're doing is cleaning up the messes of previous government steps? And I, and, and I say no. You know, maybe there's examples of that. I'm sure there are examples of that. Government makes mistakes. We, we all make mistakes. But by the way, if they didn't make mistakes, it probably means that they're not trying hard enough. They're not innovating. Right. I mean, it, it, think about being an entrepreneur and all the mistakes you made and I made starting our companies. If we didn't make mistakes, we weren't really pressing the, the envelope on what we should be doing. We weren't taking the risks that we should be taking. So mistakes are okay, but I don't think that's what we're talking about here. And, but you're absolutely right. I mean, vilification makes absolutely no sense. We, we got to work together as a team. Yeah. And a free market requires risk taken to your point, along with the, you know, with the rewards and the risks that come with it. So you have to be careful about too much government intervention and meddling with some of these things. But in any case, Mark, oh, it was super catching up. I do appreciate you taking the time. You're a busy guy. And I, I want to thank you for a fun and enlightening conversation today. And um, I'd like to encourage our listeners to check out uh, your latest podcast series, Moody's Talks, Inside Economics. That's uh available on Moody's website. I listened to the inaugural one the other day, as I mentioned, on asset bubbles, and I, I thought it was really great. So looking okay. forward to the next one. Appreciate that. And thanks for the opportunity. Really uh, enjoy the conversation and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, same here, Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, Visit us at CitusAMC.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.